Hello and welcome to Atlantic Conversations. I'm Fanula Sweeney. The Atlantic Fellowship Programme works with a diverse community of leaders around the world with a common commitment to fairer, healthier, more inclusive societies. Through its seven programmes focused on equity and healthcare, socio-economic equity and racial equity, the Atlantic Fellowships offer those leaders an opportunity to gain new perspectives and new colleagues, while strengthening their confidence in their work for change. In each podcast, I'll be speaking to an Atlantic Fellow about their work and ambitions for a more just world. In this podcast, I'm joined by Tyler Spencer. Tyler is founder and president of The Grassroot Project, a community-based non-profit organisation that trains NCAA student-athletes to provide health education and health services for teenagers in Washington, D.C. He's a graduate of the Atlantic Fellows for Health Equity U.S. and Global Programme at George Washington University. I began by asking Tyler to tell me about the NCAA. In the U.S., we have an athletic body called the NCAA, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, that governs student athletes, regulates student athletics. So it's a recognized organization. In it's the a United recognized States. organization. It's like our FIFA of all collegiate sports. So in the U.S., unlike in the U.K. where I lived for a bit, you can receive a scholarship to go to school simply based on your athletic talents. And some of our student athletes within the NCAA are practicing their sport almost like it's another job that they're holding. So it's at a very high level that student athletes are training. And a lot of young people look up when they're young. They look towards the goal of being an athlete and playing and representing a university through the NCAA. So you started this project called the Grassroots Project, which targets these athletes. Why? Really for two reasons. One is I'd spent several years in sub-Saharan Africa training professional soccer players to deliver HIV AIDS education programs and just saw that really quite simply that people were drawn toward conversations about sports and people were silenced by conversations about HIV and AIDS despite it being such a big issue in South Africa. One of the reasons that I use NCAA athletes in our model with the Grassroot Project is that just like in South Africa, young people in Washington, D.C. and urban areas across the U.S., often look up to NCAA athletes, want to emulate them. Many young people want to be in their position when they're their age. And so they're influencers. They're really positive role models for these young people. The other reason is that as a former NCAA athlete myself, I really felt like there wasn't much time to reflect and get engaged in the community when I was a student athlete because it was really hard to study abroad because you need to be on your campus for training almost year-round. And most volunteer organizations were not quite flexible to the really demanding rigorous schedules that student athletes had for practice and going to lift sessions and waking up early in the morning for sure. extra practices. And so I saw an opportunity not only to get NCAA athletes to make a huge difference in the lives of young people in Washington, D.C. But why particularly young people in your hometown? What was it you were seeing? Much to my shock, having worked in sub-Saharan Africa for several years, I came home and was asked to do a one-page fact sheet on HIV in Washington, D.C. And 
I found out that one in 20 adult residents of Washington was expected to be living with HIV. This is a rate that's five times what the World Health Organization would consider to be a severe HIV epidemic. I also went into schools and saw that many schools were either not implementing any sort of education at all, or they were making their best effort, but were struggling to connect and relate to young people with the content they were delivering. And this was at a time, presumably, after the massive AIDS scares of the 80s and the subsequent decade of the 90s, when it was thought to have been, to a certain degree, brought under control through education and awareness, not least. Exactly. I mean, I grew up in a really rural, sheltered, conservative area in the U.S. during the time when AIDS was at its peak, and I made the dangerous assumption that we had really controlled the epidemic in the U.S. And we had a lot of successes, now that I've read a lot about our history and heard history from some of the leaders in the movement in the U.S., we had a lot of success in getting people on treatment and preventing new infections. But what was happening is we're having a resurgence of the epidemic in particularly marginalized communities, in impoverished communities, in communities of color, and in communities where people have really low access to clinical health services and health education. And it, was it that that motivated you to start the grassroots project? Absolutely, yes. I saw the statistic doing this research project when I was 22 years old in my last year as a student. And I was trying to figure out what I was going to do after I graduated. And I'd actually been accepted into grad school, but there was nothing in my mind that made me more angry or more motivated or passionate to do something about the epidemic in D.C. So Uh, can I ask you, where did that anger come from? Where does that sense of injustice within you come? Now... Almost 10 years later, I've done a lot of studying about how we evaluate programs and try to make them as effective as possible. And that's something that drives me. I want to make a a measurable difference. But I think early on, the passion and the anger came from just like my core belief that young people should have access to some basic information that has potential to save their life. And what I saw when I was early on in D.C. and visiting classrooms is that students whose family members were living with HIV or who had died of AIDS were showing to us that they didn't even know about their own bodies. They knew how sex happened, but they didn't even really understand how it all worked. And I think every young person in the world should be given that information as part of their schooling, and particularly in a city that had a doubling of HIV infections among teenagers, teenagers needed to have access to those conversations and that information and those services. So you go to athletes and you say, can you come and talk to these kids? Is that how it worked? Athletes, at the level that we were recruiting, which in the U.S. with the NCAA, we have three different levels, Division One, Division Two, and Division Three. And Division One student-athletes are the most elite, the highest-performing athletes. There's the most money being made by their performance. Their scholarships to study in, in university are greater than in other divisions. And we tapped into the mentality of student-athletes, which is that they're extremely competitive. And so we didn't go and ask them to join. We went and told them how huge this problem was. We went and told them what was being done already in our city. I mean, there were some things being done, but there was an enormous, undeniable gap of services. And we said, in order to make a real difference, we want to build an organization that's 
going to connect with young people, build trust within the community and within their schools. And that's going to take a serious effort from student athletes. We believe you can do it, but only with a lot of commitment. And, and so what we, was the response among the majority of the students you talked to, the athletes? A lot of people were shocked to hear the statistics. And then I think the reason we got so many athletes early on is that that was an effective recruiting tool. We essentially told them, you can do this, but you can only do it if you put forth more effort than you would ever want to. <laughs> and we sort of, it, the pitch was almost, you're not good enough to do it. Oh, and right. for a student athlete, as soon as you tell them that, that's going to get them involved immediately. So how did the kids react to them? The kids love the athletes. I think particularly in Washington, there are lots of organizations that pair mentors and college volunteers with students from low-income communities. And as sad as this is to say, I think one of the biggest differences with what we were doing is that we were working with the same group of kids for eight consistent weeks with the same athletes. And believe it or not, those eight weeks were significantly longer than most other programs. And kids were used to seeing someone come in, try to bond with them, have a great one-day session with them, and then disappear. Um, and I think no kid wants to sit and talk about HIV for eight weeks. But what was happening is athletes were really showing our students that they cared about them and their lives. And HIV was part of that. Do you have statistics that you can point to that shows how it has worked? In 2015, we did a randomized controlled trial with almost 400 students, 200 of which received our intervention and 200 which did not. And we saw significant changes in health literacy in alignment with what our country has established as the sexual health learning standards. Mm. And so it was really exciting to see that we saw statistically significant improvements along those standards in our students and unfortunately not in the control group. Statistics we know are very important and behind every statistic is a human story. Do you have an example that you can share with us about the impact that your project had on an individual kid's life? Yes, that story for me is one of the students on the very first classroom, the very first rollout semester of our program. And this student on day one, she would have been 12 years old when she started the program. And she actually caused a lot of concern for me and her actions on the first day because as soon as these athletes filed into the room, most of the kids gravitated toward them. And she sat down at her desk and then scooted her desk into the corner of the room, crossed her arms and was checked out. And I remember going over and sort of talking to her and she said that HIV was stupid and that it was irrelevant to her and she didn't want to participate in the program. And five weeks later, she asked me to take her into the hallway for a drink of water and she shared with me that her aunt had died of AIDS and her sister was HIV positive and her family, particularly her mother, really struggled to talk about the virus. And there was so much stigma within her family that she said that she didn't know how to avoid having that same fate and she didn't know how to support her sister and how to really talk about this issue within her family and outside of her family and that she was so grateful to be in a space where her peers in a classroom where it was normal to talk about this and it was an opportunity to get the facts straight get rid of the myths around hiv and to really talk about stigma as a really dangerous element of hiv and at the end of our program, she came to Georgetown University's campus and she delivered a speech 
where she said just this, but in front of a group of her peers and athletic coaches from our university and her teachers and some of our student athletes. And I just thought that was really brave of her and just showed it was really a testament to the fact that a program that's relatively simple but wasn't there before has the opportunity to completely change a student's belief in their own future and their ability to be healthy. So the program is now thriving. It's been going for 10 years. What's next for Tyler Spencer and his ambitions for health equity? I'm not going anywhere from my organization anytime soon. And whenever I'm asked that question, I always think about it in terms of how we can expand our work, have a bigger impact, and also how we can make sure that we're thinking about our work in a health equity vein. For us, we have had a lot of demand from our community members, from our parents, from our teachers in our schools, and from our students to work with them for more than eight weeks and to address some of the other major adolescent health issues that students face. So we have responded to that by starting this year, piloting a nutritional and physical health curriculum. And we plan to start a mental health curriculum next year. We're moving from working with students for eight weeks around sexual health to working with them for eight weeks a year for three years, all through what in the U.S. we call middle school, which is ages 12 to 14. It's obviously a very critical time in adolescent brain development and a huge opportunity to set the facts straight, but also normalize healthy conversations around these different issues. And as we talk about equity, specifically health equity, how do you distinguish between that and equality? I think both words are extremely important and coming into this fellowship, I don't think I really had a full grasp on the meaning of equity and was excited to explore what that meant with my fellow fellows and with the staff and the program. Everyone has their own definition. I think most simply for me, health equality means giving everyone the same access to resources for their health, whereas equity means meeting people where they are and giving them the resources that they need, whether those be less or more than the person next to them, giving them the resources that they need to be able to thrive. And as you mentioned, the fellowship, and uh, it has come to a close now for you, you've graduated. What does the future hold for you in terms of working with your colleagues? What has the fellowship meant to you? The fellowship has challenged me to see above the stack. It's really easy with our work in D.C. to really get buried in the day-to-day and all of the amazing projects we're trying to launch and raise money for and evaluate. And I've been able to sort of lift my head off because of the fellowship and think about where we want to be in five years or ten years and how those goals are aligned with the idea and the mission of providing both equal access to health care and health resources and health education, as well as catering our services to the people that we serve in a way that they would get exactly what they need in order to thrive. And the network of other fellows has been, in some ways, given concrete contributions to our work. I mean, fellows I've asked to come in and help run trainings, to meet with some of our student athletes, to help us think through how we might design a mental health curriculum But also just in general, the network has motivated me to keep pushing and trying harder and harder and harder because the stories of my fellow fellows are phenomenal and everyone has overcome something personal in their life and they've overcome a lot of professional adversity as well. And it's just inspired me to 
not give up whenever I do hit those roadblocks. We'll leave it there. Tyler Spencer, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That was Tyler Spencer, Atlantic Fellow for Health Equity. For more information, you can visit www.atlanticfellows.org. I'm Fanula Sweeney, and you've been listening to the Atlantic Conversations podcast.